this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gilfillan with I Change Justice podcast, and I'm here with two of our teammates who have been working with us on the issues of the business of justice. And we've moved beyond the business of the law enforcement system, justice, but to social justice, civic justice, humane justice, all different levels of it, because our justice systems have been shown to be less than adequate when we start working with, as we knew it from before, as we're working with more and more civic distress and duress and conflict that's arising, not only in our local communities, but around the the nation and around the world. So welcome to the call, Karen Ball and Debbie David. And I'd like each one of you to introduce yourself in just a second or two to give people an idea of what language sort of you're speaking from by your background or your lived experience and more will come out as we discuss the call but I'd like each one of us to give you an idea of what is the language the frame of reference from which you'll be speaking Karen do you want to start and then we'll move on to Debbie okay sure so I have a background in criminal justice but um, looked at criminal justice in terms of alternatives so what, like, how can we bring conflict resolution to justice practices? And in doing that, I got trained as a, a mediator. And I also am trained in community organizing. So I became involved in my community here in San Antonio and looked at how do I become civically engaged and bring about positive social action, but from the perspective of conflict resolution, so that I'm not adding or contributing to trauma, at least as much as I can do that. Um, so that's kind of me and, and my role down at Texas at the moment. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. What a what an in, interesting combination and con, conflict configuration of different what most people think are colliding interests and you're you're working to we reweave all these different silos together into a single movement which I know is to help us bring peace to this planet. Debbie, introduce yourself in the same light. Thanks, Joy. I'm really happy to be talking about this today with you both. So I'm in here in Bellingham, Washington, uh, as is Joy. And my background, my lived experience, I've been very focused on trauma-informed care. I have have experience working with people with a variety of mental health issues and from the trauma-informed care perspective, 
one of the things that I find is a transferable skill is that when we engage with anyone, no matter who that person is and where they're at, is we have to be centered and grounded within ourselves. I'm also a home care aide, and one of the things that we learn in a physical sense is that if you're going to assist another person, you need to do so from what they call a broad base of support, which usually means standing with your feet slightly like hip hip width apart and bending your knees a little bit. That allows you mobility and flexibility and adaptability as you engage with others. And I, I just find that fascinating to think about how that might transfer in, in a way to not that you're being evasive, but that you're being available to um, be supportive, to be engaged with others in a way that manifests a, a more positive and helpful outcome. So thanks, Joy. I'm delighted to be here. So, wow. So now we're talking humanism. At the other end, we were talking social justice type issues and systems. And I come in as a third speaker on the call, not just as a moderator, as the host of I Change Justice, but as a person who for the last 15 years has been spending an enormous amount of time diagramming civic systems and the conflict we have when politics goes head to head with uh, punishment systems as in incarceration and trying to rehabilitate people who come out of incarceration traumatized. And now over the past five years, we've gone into a lot of civic collisions where we've had people around our nation dealing with constitutional crisis, law and justice crisis, but from the level of high-end political domination systems where the the Republicans and Democrats are positioned as a two-party system, and they're in mass conflict with each other, and it seems like never the twain shall meet because we're polarized. So the polarization of opposites has created a substantial amount of conflict in our in our local communities. And what's interesting is when all of this push comes to shove, our taxpayers are paying the price because we are paying for lawsuits. We're paying for all this conflict. We're paying for the wars. We're paying for this, this mass trauma problem. And we've become dehumanized within our local systems often. And we're seeing this bubble up with people ending up in duress in emergency crisis situations. We've got the added problems of weather issues right now in extremely cold weather across the United States. And so we're dealing with emergency response right at the time where our particular state, for example, just went through an election where we replaced all of our top civic leaders. Like we have a new sheriff, we have new mayors, we have new bureaucratic heads. And then there's a lot of re resignations that happen. So right now it was like three degrees weather the other day. Right now we've got two inches of snow. We've got people dealing with hypothermia who are living homeless in the out outer streets because our municipalities and our county can't get it together to run a proper 211 situation or emergency call-in system. And so now people are traumatized, they're stressed, people yell at each other, you know, this has been going on. So how do we deal with that? That's what we're going to be talking about today. How do we bring justice, humanity, and decency into our conversations 
while we're having three completely different kinds of issues. So Debbie, I'm going to start with you because I started with Karen a minute ago. I want to start with you because you're dealing, you deal with human trauma all the time because you're dealing with humanity and the difficulty of bringing people who have been displaced in community. You've worked with the homeless. You've worked with people with mental disabilities. You've worked with uh, trauma-informed care. Let's talk about some of the first things that you would do when you're approaching a high-conflict situation to help de-escalate the conflict and what are words that you might use in your region, you know, your topic area that people would recognize as a tool for helping people adapt to all this conflict and duress that we're under in these emergency situations? Well, thanks, Joy. And I've, I'd like to add that there's, before you enter a situation, there's uh, a, a space within which an individual entering a, a potential escalated situation where we have to take a moment and take a breath and calm ourselves. Because when you observe, all of us are human and we see something and we're, well, we're going to have a response to it. So it's that internal awareness of, okay, I, I observe this, but here is where I'm going to operate from. I'm my centeredness, my calm, my peace. So it, it actually starts before you, before words come out of your mouth, you center yourself, take a deep breath, um, awareness, self-awareness. And then um, just a, an assessment basically of, of what, that if that person is agitated, if that person um, looks like they're in whatever level of distress, and as you approach them, you just say hello, and your words are calm and soft and, and patient and make eye contact and stand at a 45 degree angle and allow speak to them as you would a family member that you care deeply about because we're all in this together. It's come from a place of our humanity and just say, are, is there something I can do to help you and allow them, but, and I, I missed a step. My name is Debbie. What's your name? Because that's the first part of it is that you identify who you are. Don't come up as a, a potential threat as a stranger and if they want to say their name, fine. If they don't, but but if they do share it, then you use their name. All of these are humanizing techniques, um, reaching out to someone that you care about what's going on with them. Um, so it's it's body language, it's tone of voice, it's breathing, it's bringing. If you, let's use the word peace, a peaceful approach to another human being. Go so ahead. let me speak to that for just a second, because I want to notice for the listening audience, what she did, she used her name. So she established a human relationship. My guess is you probably smiled or, or were calm in your approach to them, not just calm in sound, but by standing at a 45 degree angle, what you did for somebody who is traumatized and scared and hurt you allowed them to know that you're not boxing them in and confronting them. You're in physically allowing them psychological space to escape. So now they are already physically de-escalated. 
you've created some kind of an, an emotional connection. So even if they speak a different language than you, they know that you're trying to speak. And if your voice is calm, it has now already lowered the bioenergetic or living energy, the sound frequency and the space between you. So you've signaled that you're, you're trying to bring a safe environment here. And that's really powerful when you're talking about this, Deb. Yes, very much so, Joy. And thanks for mentioning that because there's a thing that I do myself when I'm engaging that isn't really taught, um, but I witnessed it in another person that was um, doing a training, but they don't they don't actually put it in the material. But when I do this and I say, my name is Debbie, I put my hand on my heart. Oh, and, nice. Uh, and I, I think too that, that when we we engage in that way, Again, it's like I'm, a, I'm my hands aren't in, out in front of me like I'm going to, you know, potentially challenge them in a physical way or whatever. But um, hands at my side, except for when I say my name, my name is Debbie. Um, then again, yes, smiling and even a smile in your voice, your voice mm-hmm. can change dramatically when you're you're speaking while you're smiling um, and eye contact but not staring mm-hmm. because that can often be uh, perceived as confrontational. And so, moving, moving that hand to your heart and moving that heart energy up through your eyes and allow your eyes to transmit warmth to them, to the, like you're recognizing, mm-hmm. you're looking at a real human and you're letting them know I'm a real human wanting to be compassionate or kind or soft-hearted. I want to connect with you. Absolutely. And what else is really interesting about this process, and it's not brought up during the trainings, but it it is in my experience how I connect it to what I understand about human development. And when we are newborns, part of how we begin to connect and begin to learn to co-regulate with our caregivers is that first eye contact. And it is very calming if the if the person that your caregiver is calm. It is a connection. It is a calming. It is a co-regulation opportunity. And that's so that's interesting. That's like you know they they speak about eighty five percent of communication is often done in the non physical non physical or non auditory space. So this physical connection of warmth and softness and eye contact and liking them those are all part of building the relationship at the first step of a shock situation because that's where people are they're shocked they're scared they're out of normal so keep going Deb so um, after you've made the connection and you can see that this individual that you're attempting to assist and de-escalate is responsive to you, you can move into um, maybe they're either sitting on the ground or whatever, uh, put yourself in a position where you're not towering over them. So somehow maybe in squat is still at a 45 degree angle so that it you don't want to be body in a position where you're towering over them or or uh, it that's a, a dominant position Mm -hmm. and that's Mm -hmm. yeah 
Yeah. So again, you know, all of these factors and when you're doing this, all of these things are happening fairly quickly and how you're attempting to engage. So the awareness and the practice of doing this uh, is very important to, you know, take advantage of practicing these with other people that you know and just do some scenarios. So uh, once you've made that connection and there's this bridge of opportunity now that you can find out how to assist this person, um, again, keep keeping the slow, calm talk and breathing and even start with something simple. Um, you know, are you thirsty? Could I get you some water? What is your greatest need right now? Um, and just allowing them to speak rather than trying. There's a very strong emphasis on that we don't, uh, as in the de-escalation technique, to not be pushy in assisting them, but we allow them to share what they need. And if it doesn't come out, then offer what what you think might be helpful. Because sometimes people are in such distress, they can't communicate their needs they're not able to. They're overwhelmed. They they can't get in that thinking space of, you know, what is it that I really need? Sometimes it's just needing the connection. Yeah. So what I just heard you say, Deb, and speak anytime you want, Karen, into, into this conversation, because this is this is really important. It's I heard you say, How can I help you? Or what can I do? Can I get you water? Can I help you move? You know, give them a couple of choices, but don't tell them you need to move or you need to do this or what did you do? It's not about, you know, shoving things at them. It's giving them the space so that if they can speak, so that if they can tell you what's up, they have an opportunity to be able to say it into the space which establishes the exchange between the person who's in shock or trauma and you, the person who is here to help. Is that fairly accurate, Deb? And do you have anything to say about that, Karen? Um, let me just say one more thing before okay. I, um, and I would love to hear from Karen, but what you just reiterated and what that, that in summary is you've established a relationship and it is in relationship with other people that were able to solve problems. And right. that is a part of what I, in my lived experience and in my day to day that I see that is, has inhibited us from achieving social justice, um, economic justice, uh, all the injustices that we, you know, are experiencing, it's the relationship, it's in relationship together in community that we can grow beyond where we are in our limited um, situations. So I would love to hear from Karen about this too, because conflict resolution ties right all into this. It, it it does. I'm I'm also thinking in terms of you know Joy described um, how you would not necessarily think of how all my learnings fit together, but <laughs> it it's a reweaving, and I think that's what is necessary necessary in a very complicated world, as both of you know. Here in San Antonio, I'm involved with a collaborative to prevent domestic violence or reduce the levels of domestic violence we have. 
And certainly if you have an individual coming to you with an outcry of violence, you're not going to want to be in the position of saying, oh, you need to do this. You need to leave that person. You need to, you know, go down here and do X, Y, and Z. You've just taken over the role of the bully <laughs> that they're trying to escape from. So um, I think it was perfect, Debbie, in how you were describing the, the, the focus needs to be on the person in front of you. And in powering that person to make their own decisions. They're, they know their life. They're the experts, so to speak, in their own life. So if an individual comes to you and is in need of, hey, I need shelter because I've, I've just walked away from a, um, an abusive situation and I have some kids in tow, ask that person, mother, father, whoever it is, what it what they need help with you know do you need food do you need you know um sustainable you know ongoing housing or do you have a temporary spot to go and listen it's really important because what you both just did there it's it's about stopping for a minute looking at the person creating a connection it's about looking to see what's happening to them. Like we talked about moving, you know, at 45 degrees, softening your eye. But at the same time, this is not about you. It's about them. So when you're doing those actions, learning how to downsize what you're trying to put out, you're trying to express the calmness and the love that you have for them and the listening that you have. But at the same time, the back of your mind, if you're talking about humans and humanizing, we have to learn to observe what they're doing. They may flinch, they may move, they may um, express, be expressing pain. They might be in a different language. So you have, you have to, you're paying attention to what is their language what is their subtle movement? What is it that they need? Because if they're in an accident, they they may not be able to tell you what's going on, but they can point to where it hurts, <laughs> you know? And if you've got somebody who's who's traumatized and they're scared of you, they may cover their head up and they may, you know, shelter their body. These are things that you're listening for. You're, so you're stopping, you're looking, you're listening. And then what happens Deb, in the next few steps, because this is part of this trauma de-escalation, de you know, data gathering space. So it's important that as you get information to try to meet what the person's expressing that they need, that you continue the conversation about um, for example, you know, if they need help up, even before you touch them, that you say, okay, I can do this. Um, is this okay? Because trauma and the way it manifests in people, movements, touch, um, voice, temperature, so many things could potentially be triggers and you can be right in the middle of thinking you're doing the right thing for someone because that's what they've asked for. And you, it, it goes sideways because you didn't continue to attempt to continue that connection and keep working on that relationship as you engage. Um, so it, it's so interesting that it's um, I've had 
circumstances where I've also engaged as a home care aide with the elderly that have had um, some dementia issues. And it's very similar because it's like they're in a constant state of not being mentally present. Mm -hmm. And so it's very similar. And is it okay if I help you by, you know, supporting your elbow? I'm going to touch your elbow now. So it's in so many ways, it's as much like how we engage with children when they're really young and we're talking them through what's going on um, with uh, maybe they've gotten hurt. Um, so it's it's a really multifaceted dynamic that we're engaging with, but it's very, very human. And, and any time that we have the opportunity to practice and engage with others in our life in a humane way, prepares us for the next encounter, no matter who we're dealing with. We have family members that, you know, we're, we're engaging with and all of us are experiencing trauma all the time. We are, our world is at war. So it's very much about keeping ourselves as centered and as calm as possible as we continue to move through our day and whoever we're interacting with, it's pretty much an assumption. You can Expect that anyone, grocery store person, your pharmacist, we're all experiencing some level of of sadness and and trauma. So it's an approach we can take with us wherever we go. So in that exchange you're talking about, that's in a way that's sort of deciding what's next. But what you're doing is because you're engaging, you're trading your communication your questions with their answers, you're trading your nonverbal communications with theirs, you're giving them an, a, a chance to speak or to reply so that you're engaging to see if you're communicating at whatever level your relationship is allowing you to communicate with. Would that be, am I, am I listening to you? Yes, because without the feedback, then you're not you don't know if your actions are are being helpful or that they're actually uh, unwanted and unwelcome and you want to attempt to figure that out before you get the a negative reaction in the process so, so and this can take a long time because we and we can't rush it the patience required to engage in this way is extremely important. And knowing that, setting your intention that that's the situation before you engage is is critical to the successful outcome of helping to stabilize that individual. So, so let's talk about that one more level because you just talked about the speed of action. If somebody's in an emergency situation and you have to move fast, what you might have to do in that engagement is say, I'd love to spend time. I'd like to talk with you, but I have to move you to get you out of danger. So please, you know, just I have to move you because there's danger or there's, you know, I have to get you to shelter. I have to get you out of the cold. Please forgive me if I move and you don't understand what I'm doing because, you know, this is one of those things that happens in a drowning situation. Oftentimes you got a person who's drowning and the rescuer goes out to save the person and the person will fight him off. And sometimes the person who's saving the, you know, the lifeguard will have to knock out the person or slap them awake, you know, and it seems like violence, but it isn't because of the urgency of the movement. So how would you talk about that in this 
case that you brought up, Karen, when you're talking about domestic violence, you've got somebody who is in danger. They came to you. They've they're in the middle of a trauma. How do what are some words that you might use to help them be able to communicate whether they're in urgent danger? Maybe somebody's shooting at them right now. I mean, I don't know. How do you assess that in these kind of um, critical, dangerous situations? Well, and and that I believe is the challenge, um, particularly for police officers. I mean, when I was a student of criminal justice at that point in time, I think domestic calls were like sixty to seventy percent of a police officer's time is going out and responding to domestic calls. Mm-hmm. I think I anticipate it's only increased since then. But now you also have the added uh, dimension of nonconformist relationships. So, you know, I grew up in a world where usually it was a um, a man and a woman in a housing situation, you know, living uh-huh. together uh-huh. and may have children. But domestic violence is something that happens across the entire spectrum, um, all socioeconomic areas, but also in the queer community. So say an officer comes on the scene and you have two individuals of the same sex, so to speak, in the conflict, then the officer's trying to discern who's the aggressor in this particular <laughs> instance. Uh-huh. And it could even be that the aggressor in that in that incidence is not the one that is being domestically abused. It's just they had gotten to a trauma level where they reacted with violence and the cops show up on the scene. So I think part of it is in conflict, if you can separate the parties and hear what's going on with each party and try to piece together a larger picture of an ongoing relationship and not just look at, okay, here I am, I'm at the door, and this person's, you know, holding a knife or holding a gun, so they obviously must be the oppressor. Maybe, maybe not. Do some digging. So maybe part of the question then becomes, what's up and how can I help? We don't want anyone to get hurt here. How can I help you? Right. Would the would the would that be an appropriate response? And would that work for you, Debbie? Because let's say you're dealing with two children who are special needs kids and they're in conflict with each other and one of them is escalating and one is, you know, the other one is hitting because they don't know any other method. What is the way that you would defrag, if you will, that situation or de-escalate that situation? What are words that you might use to calm that? You know what's interesting about that, Joy, is that um, this isn't this is something I came into training with from lived experience. So having had children um, that were uh, neurotypical rather than uh, diversely abled, it's the it's the art of the distraction, the surprise. It breaks. It it's like an energy shift from um, 
you know, whatever's going on, a response like, oh, my goodness, is that a kitten there (laughs) or something that, you know, that individual would respond to. It's like, I think I have balloons in my purse or I mean it. So it is it's about shifting um, where they're at when it when you're when it comes to young children. I doubt that that would work with adults, but I suppose (laughs) it's possible. But um, no, and it's worked time and time again uh, with my with in my experience with diversely abled children um, that whose language and and abilities, there's their their vocabulary individually is is maybe um, not where they're able to communicate in complete sentences and sometimes their ability to even understand what you're doing, but they very much read facial expressions. So um, a, a smile and an excited look and then hand gestures towards what's that over there? Is that a butterfly? It's coming in the window. I mean, it it just shifts the the energy, the attention, the the focus, and kind of breaks their train of thought where they were kind of locked into this. You know, I wanted, I had that toy first, and uh, you know, whatever it was. Um, well, it's it's interesting that you've gone to distraction, and yet going directly to this is the consequence. So being able to, as the person who's doing the interception or trying to de-escalate a situation, it's worth noticing this is why you're you're choosing to orient yourself to the location before you walk in, why you clean up and make sure that you are aligned. Your goal is to reduce conflict and to... Um, de-escalate the energetic situation it's all it's not always about the physical it might be the emotional trauma the hyper reactivity that people have gotten into so helping to defrag the emotional reactivity is really what you're doing so that you can find a point of decision where someone can make a one degree shift to a different position which changes the 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 trouble spot mm-hmm. so someone can take an action whether it's you or them someone can take an action that doesn't make somebody else vulnerable so much as it allows you to diffuse the situation enough so we can bring calmness to the state would you say that that's pretty accurate deb Yes. And what what came up for me while you were just saying that is um, a statement that I commonly refer to is that an escalated adult cannot de-escalate an escalated child. So, and I, you know, logically an escalated adult can't de-escalate another escalated adult, but it especially works with children. And because of the size difference, we're already um, to an extent intimidating to them because just of our size. And if we come in in a forceful sense, um, physically, that only escalates their fear response. And it, it there's, there's not a positive outcome when you engage in that manner. And so I, I don't ever engage in a, in a physical sense, unless it's soft, gentle, 
touches that are calming and soothing. Um, and for that, it's, you know, again, like maybe a gentle touch on the shoulder and say, it's okay, I'm here, you're okay, um, those kinds of responses. But that doesn't always work. The distraction pretty much always works, but the the attempt at the soothing and the soft, gentle touch and the reassurance, it you really have to just read the situation and to an extent have to know that child in order for for the the calm part, the calm technique to to work with them. So So let's come back to you, Karen, in just a minute. I want to take a break for the audience, but let's come back to you because I want to talk about this idea that an escalated adult cannot, you know, de-escalate another escalated adult. And I want to question that because oftentimes there's only two of you in the room and you're both adults and maybe you both did come into the situation escalated. So I'd like to introduce the concept of if you can create some kind of a stop so that you can breathe and re and change the escalation factor from the same form to a different kind of listening. So let's talk about that for a second. How can we de-escalate each other if we are in civic situations where we are talking adult to adult, we are talking civic to civic, we are talking police to police. How do we do that when we're talking about intercepting and getting out of a duress or a dis, deep, you know, distress situation? Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. If you are a business owner or professional who wishes to sponsor our Restorative Community Coalition, give a legacy gift to the Restore Life Center Project or support our fundraising events, feel free to contact us at sponsors at therestorativecommunity.org. So welcome back to the call. We're here with Karen and we're here with Debbie, two very, very different people working in two different situations. I'm in the middle of both of them somewhat because I'm working with civic leaders who supposedly are rational, except when they get in situations where they are they are not rational at the moment because maybe they have legal problems or people are watching them and they have a you know they they're standing to lose status in a situation or they're standing to lose power and there's legal or other kinds of complications like there let's say there's an audience outside that's getting ready to go into a a protest and it's escalating how do we how do we bring all this together and we don't have a lot of time left on the call but but Karen, how would you talk about how do you de-escalate between two escalated people who are both in positions of power? What what kind of tool could we use to do an interception there if it's not a distraction and it's not a an immediate harm? How could we do it in a civic situation, conflict? Well, I, I think it's m- multiple skills, and I think okay. we also recognize that it, it's not a short-term fix. So, um, Johan um, uh, Galtung came up with a theory about violence and tri- a violence triangle, and he talks about how you know violence can you know really take three different manifestations: a personal, physical manifestation a structural, it's embedded into um, systems, and a a cultural 
where it, it's just kind of become the norm of the particular area. And people have been socialized to act in a particular manner. So let me give you an on-the-ground experience from Texas here and show you how complicated it is because you're not merely looking at uh, violence in terms of um, argument. Uh -huh. it, it, it goes much deeper to the cultural and the structural. And that is, it, I live in Texas, so I live in a border state. We are right now having a crisis at the border. We have an influx of people crossing the border. Recognizing that our governor has taken the position that the way to respond to this is to bus many or fly many of these immigrants that are crossing to what are called sanctuary cities. And, mm -hmm. and they're across the United States. One of them I know is up in Chicago, Illinois. So he has a genuine concern in terms of we have an influx of people crossing the border and our current policies are not capable of handling. That's the structural problem that we have. His personal choice is I'm going to ship them elsewhere because people need to, the Northern states need to understand the pressure Texas is feeling. Okay. That's his opinion because that, he's under that, duress and that's what he can do. And he thinks that might help solve the problem because he needs to get attention to correct. his problem. Right. Correct. Okay. Okay. So, but having heard somewhat from the position of the governor in um, Illinois, he reached out to, my understanding is he approached Abbott and said, Abbott, I understand that you're overwhelmed and you're sending people to us. Could you please give us some heads up of when they're coming and how many are coming? Perhaps even what country so we can organize to make sure we can speak the language. And that we can help because what the one governor is asking of the other governor is, look, you're sending it out. I get you're under distress, but I need to accommodate and I need to be ready to receive people. If you're going to send them, at least tell me who's coming and how many or whatever. Right. Correct. That's, that's the standoff that we now have between two governors, both in high performance. And I think... Karen, that we may end up going to a second call next week okay. to go into more depth on this. Okay. But this is a perfect example of two hyper-escalated people of power who both have different levels of authority, but they've got a trauma brewing between them that's going to blow over. So what happened when the second governor put out his request and the first one, I'm assuming, must have ignored him? Right. Or so didn't respond so the, properly. The, the governor in, in Illinois tried to reach out to um, the governor's office here in Texas, was unsuccessful, or the the governor indicated or somebody from his office indicated that they couldn't share that information. Maybe they don't know ahead of time. I, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm giving them the yeah. There's a breakdown but, in communication. Right. So um, 
As a result, the governor in Illinois took out a full page ad that says Governor Abbott and, and, you know, basically is pleading his case in the public square about let's work on this together. I recognize that this is not just your problem. This is truly a federal problem. And how can we both work together so that some federal legislation can come to the aid of this issue that is keeping them on opposing sides? Sure. Wow. So now we've got a, a, a much more complex situation and we don't have time to resolve it on this particular conference call. We're going to need to do another radio show next week. So we're going to come together with you next week to talk about more complex situations that happen in our civic square. But if I can, let's go back and look at what is like in these different situations, what is different in these different situations, and how can we take the same approach on every single thing? One of the things that our coalition has discovered, we created a model called the SLAP method, S-L-L-A-P. And it's, it's number one, you stop, you look, you listen, just like we were all taught in kindergarten, one, two, three, stop, look, listen. Then as a person who goes into middle school where you don't have people, you know, running the stop signs for you anymore, you assess the conditions to see if it's safe to move forward. And then you pivot based upon the conditions that you face. So what you did, if I could just put some words in your mouth, Debbie, for a second, is you said, stop and breathe. Then you assessed a situation or why don't you do that? Summarize the stop, look, listen, assess, pivot of what you're talking about when you're talking about just humanizing a situation. Can you put that in five steps? Not as brilliantly as you do, but (laughs) (laughs) I am so much more about um, the, oh, I function from a really intuitive place. And Uh so it's, it's very difficult for me to actually put that into the words, but um, I like what you've used with the SLLAP because it does describe what I, I do intuitively. And mm-hmm. I think yours is a much better, um, if, if I were to teach it, that's what I would use. Mm-hmm. Um, however, once I've learned it like that, I, I don't then uh, think in the, right. I, I don't think in, in that format. It sure just becomes don't. a part of me. I internalize it. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm not able to expand on it any better than you did. So thank okay, you, Joy. So I'll come back to you because I, I this is where I actually started with it before I finally figured out we have to teach it to people in a way that people who are linear, logical, or have to learn in rote behavior, they don't have the intuitive thing that you grew up with because you came off of a farm and you had to learn this or you get your butt kicked by a cow or a horse or a bull. You know, I mean, they if you don't learn to stop, and look at what's going on around you, listen to what's happening to them and to the world around you, then you had to assess what was going on and make a decision about what was the next best thing to do so you didn't get hurt, right? So it was stop, look, listen, assess, and pivot. So So Karen, can you do it in your language of 
stop, look, listen, assess, and pivot. What is it that you do when you're dealing with a domestic violence or a civic issue? Could you use well, the same it, words? Mm, or how would you say it differently, but similar result to solve the problem? I, I do not think I'd use the same word. And I would also be cut because we're talking about civics. We're talking about groups. Mm -hmm. So you need to look at that process that you laid out. And I love your process for, for pivoting, but you need to look at it individually as well as mm -hmm. on a systems level. Sure. So let's take the example of the two governors. How could each of them individually said, let me take, let me take a breather here. Okay. Yep. Somebody's just done something that, you know, angers me. Take a deep breath. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's going on? What might be his circumstances for the way he reacted? Okay. So you and look at then, that, you look yes. at the circumstances. You assess. And then with the decision and the action, I would say, what is the most compassionate action you can take? So you because listen, you listen. Yeah, yeah. You listen compassionately to the larger circumstances of what's going on. Right. Okay. Right. And then, of course, as I mentioned, immigration is not just an, an issue for Illinois and Texas. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is something we need to look at structurally. How is it that our immigration system is failing individuals that are coming out of a need okay mm -hmm. because they're escaping violence okay mm -hmm. but yet we're not able to respond to that other than saying we're going to ship you somewhere else or we're going to close the doors and say you can't commit so so let's let's unpack that just for a second because now you went from stop look and listen you see it but mm -hmm. now the third the third element is to decide not only how could we solve the problem. Sure, we can go to the feds, but that's not going to solve it today when the guy's still putting people on the plane. Right. So so the decision is who else could we invite into this situation who could help us either make it so that the people coming in Texas or the people who are being being rece receiving these sanctuary people what else could be done to eliminate the harm and the danger and the trauma that's being experienced right now? So there's a third factor that is involved. So the decision isn't about facing one or the other. It's about who can cause an interception or a distraction, as Debbie said, like what could distract and disarm the situation so we could bring peace into the situation and a conversation. Would that be fair? Yes, 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 that is absolutely fair. Okay. I, and I fell into the, and, and this is normal for individuals. Yes, it is. Because of uh, our complicated lives is I fell into that either or trap. That's right. And so that is a perfect example of what we're trying to learn here. And what we as adults dealing in a com complicated world when we decide, let's look at three choices, it's not one or the other. Otherwise, you're still ex you're escalating the violence, which is what um, Debbie was saying. You, If you've got an escalated person and you're trying to de-escalate another escalated person, unless one of you gets out of the escalation situation and displaces or changes the, the, the viewfinder, 
you need to bring in a third party or a third perception that could say, what if it wasn't like this? Where else could I go? And you decide on a third option that might help. Mm -hmm. And then you take action. So it's stop, look, listen, assess, and pivot to a new action that can get you just one degree closer to where you are. And then you can continue to start moving people out of the danger zone into a safer place. That makes sense to you guys? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, Joy, 100%. So is there anything that either one of you could say in, a, in just a quick minute wrap up to say that we're going to come back next week and have a, another conversation that takes us deeper into it? Because when we get deeper, we start looking at language, we start looking at perception shifts, we start looking at trauma and duress and all this other stuff. But for today... Let's look at this. What else could you say to complete your part of what you'd like to say on this call? I think yep. that how we just how setting our intention every mm -hmm. day that we function from a grounded, centered, calm place that whatever comes up, we can manage it. And if if we if it doesn't seem like we can, then we can put it aside momentarily until we strategize to figure it out. It's just, I believe every day that we have that choice to, it's a decision and an intention to be able to engage every situation from a place of calm and peace. And that can expand like the domino effect. I'm mm -hmm. going to keep sending it out and spreading it wherever I go. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Karen, what is your Absolutely. closing comment? Absolutely. I, I agree with that 100 percent that, you know, the, the change starts with within. But I think we also need to recognize we have a bit of a bit to unlearn here in terms of the strategies that we have inherited over the generations. So um, what learning can we, you know, Gene um, Sharp came up with 198 <laughs> nonviolent actions. Wow. Let's learn them. <laughs> wow, that's you know, cool. You know, and do some study. So let's come back to the call next week. Uh, um, listeners, we would welcome you back next week. Please come listen to us learn how we can de-escalate uh, difficult situations and bring more peace to our planet by learning to control our own emotional response to trauma. Thank you very much, Karen. Thank you, Debbie, for joining us on the call today. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.